Hello, you are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Aver with Environmental Defense Fund and Restore the Mississippi River Delta. Um, I am so excited. You know, we talk so much about the Mississippi River on this show. And, you know, a lot of times we're talking about it in the context of Louisiana and the Lower River. Um, but we know that the river that we experience in Louisiana and South Louisiana, the Gulf of Mexico, um, is, uh, you know, part of a much larger river that extends across, you know, pretty much uh, half of the continent and two Canadian provinces. Um, and there's a lot of influence that happens from upriver in places like Minnesota and Iowa and elsewhere. So really excited to shift perspectives a little bit on this show and focus on the upper Mississippi River. And helping me do that is Trevor Russell, who is the Water Program Director at the Friends of the Mississippi River um, organization, which is based in Minnesota, where I am currently. So um bringing on a little bit of the, you know, upper river perspective today and excited to have Trevor on to talk us through um, what are some of the unique challenges and opportunities on the Mississippi River um, in, in our neck of the woods. So without further ado, let's welcome to Delta Dispatches, Trevor. Trevor, you're a first time guest, but we're very excited to have you on Delta Dispatches. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. You are based in Minnesota, is that correct? Yeah, good morning, Jacques. Uh, yeah, based here in the beautiful, sunny Twin Cities. Uh, and yeah, my uh, my role with Friends of the Mississippi River is our water program director. So I work on both state and federal issues related to the quality of water in the Mississippi River that we send down to our friends in the Gulf. Yeah, and you know, don't want to make our friends down in, in Louisiana jealous. It is a beautiful 76 degrees and sunny today, but I'm sure in about six months we're going to be wanting to, you know, make our way down there, um, no doubt, to visit them. So don't don't be too jealous yet. Um, so you're you're based slightly upriver, as I like to tell folks in Minnesota, um, but the river that we experience here in the Twin Cities is is quite different from the river that folks might experience in New Orleans or Plaquemines Parish. So can you help paint a picture um, for our listeners? What is the Mississippi River like up here? So the river is really different from what folks in the Gulf might experience. Um, you know, we're the headwater state and we take pride in, in our stewardship of our, of our great rivers. You know, up in Lake Itasca State Park, uh, you can walk across the Mississippi River. Um, and then it, it, it takes quite a journey before it even leaves the state of Minnesota. Um, you know, the, the upper Mississippi River basin in, the, in Minnesota drains about 13 million acres of diverse landscapes, including forests, prairies, ag areas, urban areas, before it meets its confluence with the Minnesota River, uh, uh, which is largely an agricultural uh, river that drains about 10 million acres of mostly ag lands near Fort Snelling State Park. Um, during that journey, the river goes from a rather placid prairie river, drops down through the only natural waterfall on the Mississippi River into the Mississippi River Gorge, travels completely through this deep uh, embedded gorge right through Minneapolis and St. Paul before that confluence. And then it spreads out and becomes a large floodplain river that is most familiar to most Americans. Um, as it makes its way uh, down to uh, down to Louisiana, so it, it takes quite a journey from a from a sort of small um, forested river uh, down through a large prairie river ecosystem, 
through this magnificent, almost violent waterfall and gorge, and then into the large floodplain river that we uh, most Americans know and love. Yeah, you know, it is it is really striking. Um, and I, I've, I've thought about that, you know, pieces of uh, the, the water. I saw a ball, uh, just a ball floating in the river, you know, a rubber ball. I was like, I wonder how long it would take for that ball to make its way to New Orleans. But about 90 days. Wow. Okay, so you know. <laughs> well, that answers that question, certainly. So I hope 90 days later, Simone picked up the ball in her neck of the woods and, and, and you know, gave it to her kids to play with. But, but that is fascinating. Um, 90 day journey from, uh, I guess, Minneapolis to New Orleans by river. Um, and, you know, one of the other things that really struck me when I moved here um, is just people are out on the river, they're boating, they're kayaking, you know, um, it's just, it, there seems to be a really great connection um, in Minnesota between you know, people and, and the river. Um, and, and there's a lot of parks and stuff that allow them to have that connection, which was which was great to see. Yeah, the land, the land of 10,000 lakes uh, moniker is, is no accident. Uh, Minnesota it likes to think of ourselves as the home of clean water. We're a very uh, outdoorsy um, people. We, we have a deep respect for preserving and protecting our natural resources, particularly our water resources. And water is embedded into so many areas of Minnesota life, whether that's you know going up to a lake cabin on the weekend or canoeing on um, any of our state's magnificent water trail uh, systems, which are, are free and open to the public and, and include free camping. Um, we really have a, a deep and unabiding water ethic, and we, we work really hard to make sure that our waters are protected and preserved for, for generations to come. Yeah, I think that definitely has come through um, in terms of what I've experienced. I will say we've only got about mm, six weeks left to experience it. No, I'm joking. It's beautiful in the fall and winter too, but um, great all year round. Um, so Trevor, I do want to dig into your your career and your background a little bit. I mean, in addition to being the water program director at Friends of the Mississippi River, you are um, part of the Minnesota Environmental Partnership Water Cluster. Um, you also um, are on the Mississippi River Network for FMR um, and, and involved with the Mississippi River Restoration and Resilience Initiative. So quite busy, certainly. Um, tell us, how did you first get involved in kind of community organizing and environmental policy uh, and, and really on, on issues related to the Mississippi River? As, as Simone likes to ask, did, did little Trevor you know, always dream of growing up to be kind of a policy and um, community organizing leader working on the Mississippi River. Jacques, believe it or not, little Trevor did uh, want to do this when he became big Trevor. Uh, you know, the, the, the origin story for me is that I lived in a, a small forested community um, outside of Manchester by the sea, Massachusetts as a kid. And one day, you know, literally that sort of the bulldozers came and, and took the woods that my friends and I played in. And not long after our family moved away. And that really stuck with me that, um, you know, I found my place and my meaning in the world in relationship to the natural environment around me and felt deprived and lost a little bit when that was taken away. Um, years later, working or studying environmental policy and economics um, at in, in Colorado, uh, I sort of came face to face with um, the, the attempt to prevent Vail Mountain from experience, uh, expanding its operations into the Blue Sky Basin um, through 
basically environmental arson. Uh, folks came and, and burned down a series of lift houses and lodges in an attempt to prevent the expansion of uh, sort of a recreational area into a, a protected lynx habitat. And, and I realized that that probably wasn't the most effective pathway to protecting our natural resources, that, that maybe through policy and public intervention, we could do a better job of stewarding our resources in a way that, that works and is sustainable over time. So I became really interested in environmental policy, began working in this field largely in uh, transit, land protection, land conservation. Um, I think most stemming from that experience as a child of, of losing forested lands near my home. And then eventually, um, you know, my experience with the Mississippi River is the longer you are near it, the greater the gravitational pull of the river is on you. And I became more and more and more interested in the river and found myself spending more time in and along the river and eventually just sort of fell in love and, and decided that that river work was my calling and was lucky enough to find a position at Friends of the Mississippi River to, to be able to carry out that work. That's an incredible origin story. And I think um, one that our listeners can certainly relate to in terms of that, the personal connection to an area that's near and dear to them and seeing changes happening and really wanting to get involved um, in, in, you know, uh, impacting changes for the positive in the future. And I think um, a lot of people, you know, are myself included kind of accidental environmentalists and that we're, you know, working to preserve places that we love. Um, and so that's, that's really a beautiful story. Um, I want to dig into Friends of the Mississippi River. So tell us a little bit um, about the organization, its history, and the work you all do. Sure. So the so FMR's origin story actually dates back to 1976, where um, when Minnesota established the Mississippi River Critical Area, which protects a key portion of the Twin Cities Metro Mississippi River. And then... Um, about a decade or so later, uh, that section of the river was declared a unit of the National Park Service, the Mississippi National River and Recreation Area. And some of the sort of, we'll call them forefathers of FMR were deeply engaged in the congressional work to establish that unit of the National Park Service. Shortly thereafter, many of those same principles said, you know, there should be a citizen group dedicated to protecting and preserving this national park akin to, say, Friends of Yellowstone or, or Friends of Yosemite. And so Friends of the Mississippi River was born. Since then, we've grown to uh, include four main programs. Uh, we work on water quality. Uh, that's, that's largely my work. We do a great deal of uh, land stewardship, protection, and preservation throughout, uh, throughout the river corridor. We work on river corridor stewardship and education. And then we're deeply engaged in river management and land use and planning issues, particularly how cities interact with the river when they build and expand their footprint in and along the Mississippi River itself. Um, that is our core focus. Naturally, because uh, we can't wait until water reaches the 72 miles of this national park in the Twin Cities, our water quality work has to look further upstream and further afield to policy and landscape level activities uh, that 
that influence upstream decision-making that affects downstream water quality use. And I think that will resonate for listeners in the Gulf in that it's too late by the time the Mississippi reaches the Gulf to prevent sort of the Gulf hypoxic zone. We always need to look upstream to find solutions to our water quality challenges. And that's really the heart of my work. Absolutely. And I mean, I, th- I certainly think the way that you frame that in terms of upstream, you know, within Minnesota impacting downstream, but then certainly upstream upper river of impacting kind of the lower river in the Gulf. So tell us about uh, some of the solutions that you all are, are working to advance and advocating for, um, particularly as it relates to your the water program. Sure. Well, the, you know, the history of our water quality work is, is unique in that originally uh, when I came on almost 17 years ago now, we focused largely on trying to deploy the the levers of the Clean Water Act regulatory mechanism to address many of the issues facing the river. And in some of those cases, we've been really successful. So I'll give you one example, uh, a contaminant called triclosan. So this was a antimicrobial agent that was originally developed in the 1960s and included in a variety of household products cosmetics, sportswear, soaps, you name it. But the big one was was uh, antibacterial hand soap. Um, unfortunately, uh, most of that triclosan goes down the drain. And when it moved through wastewater treatment systems, it was exposed, exposed to chlorine and then later sunlight, and it broke down into triclosan-derived dioxins, which we started finding uh, throughout the Mississippi River. In fact, 58% of U.S. rivers and streams have triclosan uh, itself in them. Uh, and we found triclosan-derived dioxins had increased by two to 300% in Lake Pepin sediment, um, the lake just downstream of the Twin Cities, um, while all other dioxins had fallen between 73 and 90% during that same uh, 1960s to today window. And so what we realized is this is a, a major contaminant of concern and, and regulatory intervention was necessary. So in 2007, we were able to successfully adopt legislation prohibiting the sale of triclosan-based consumer soaps and the, and the federal government followed uh, suit shortly thereafter. So some examples of sort of point source pollutant success addressing specific contaminants of concern are in our portfolio. But over time, we've moved away from those those specific contaminants and more broadly to look at the agricultural runoff pollutants that are by far the largest source of pollution to the Mississippi River. And so we're we're working largely on can we deploy a combination of regulatory interventions, land conservation, cropping systems reform and technical outreach and education to create an agricultural landscape that is more compatible with a healthy and robust Mississippi River. And over time, what we've come to conclude is that three of those tools are useful, but probably not going to be successful. And and those three are sort of direct regulatory interventions, uh, education, outreach, technical assistance, and land retirement. While each of those can be really effective at a small parcel level, they're expensive, they're ephemeral, they're often met with political resistance, and they're difficult to scale up to the size of acreage that we need to change in our agricultural landscape to achieve the sort of water quality goals we're looking for. And so we've really transformed into uh, pursuing what we call continuous living cover cropping systems, which is basically to say we want to to in a, in a slow, orderly, thoughtful, economically viable manner over time, 
reform the upper Mississippi River corn and soybean landscape to something that has continuous living vegetation, green living roots in the ground year round. And what research tells us is that those systems can be both economically advantageous for producers, excellent for soil health, habitat, and wildlife, and make remarkable improvements in water quality. So these are market-based voluntary systems that are really about transforming the paradigm of our upper Mississippi River agricultural system. It's really fascinating. And, and I mean, it's definitely a very tangible example of a solution, you know, that could be put in place. Um, and I, I imagine, you know, like you like you were pointing to in the earlier example, I mean, understanding the challenges and kind of understanding the dynamics along the river um, is kind of a challenge in and of itself. And so I know that you were part of um, co-authoring the award-winning State of the River Report. So can you tell us a little bit about that report um, and some of the main takeaways and why um, you know, those types of analyses are so important to you know, finding the appropriate solution to these big challenges? Yeah, so the, you know the Mississippi River is a is a complex, dynamic natural system, and so it, it's not always easy when someone asks, "Hey, how is the Mississippi River?" Uh, to answer that in a clear and compelling manner, especially for folks that are not scientists and don't work in the water quality world, sort of day in and day out. So in 2012, and then again in 2016, we partnered with the National Park Service to to author the State of the River report. And listeners can go to stateoftheriver.com and read that report um, at your leisure. Uh, There's also a policy guide and a teacher's guide. If you're a classroom teacher and you want to teach about the Mississippi River, um, that's a great tool for you to use. But in essence, we wanted to distill the health and, and wellness of the Mississippi River into 13 key indicators of water quality and river health and present that information in a way that people can easily understand. And um, is that a report that you all kind of work to update over time or, or um, you know, is it kind of a regular process that you all are, are putting out that report? Um, you know, we did it in 2012 and 2016. I suspect that we will do it again in sort of the mid 2000s, which I suppose is coming up just around the corner here. Um, I would anticipate something on a maybe a 10 year timeline would be appropriate for that work. Uh, but that has that is to be determined, um, you know, every time. <laughs> Every time we look more closely at the Mississippi River, we find something new. And I think that's that's reflective of really almost any natural sciences. And so there's always a new story to tell. the lift of preparing and producing and, and distributing the State of the River Report is, is relatively significant. So we sort of wait for enough new stories to come online before we package them all together. And, and uh, I, I suppose the state of the science will determine the frequency of the report. Yep. I, I imagine that is a very extensive undertaking. So I didn't, didn't and mean to imply, uh, you know, that you all would, would <laughs> certainly move forward with it. We know what that's like on our end too. So, um, but I will say, you know, that's interesting. We often talk about how there's no status quo on Louisiana's coast, right? It's a constantly changing and dynamic ecosystem. And even if you look at the kind of um, sociological human element of it as well, um, there's constant change. I imagine that can be said for the Mississippi River too. So keeping track of it and, and uh, you know monitoring those changes is kind of very important. It is. It's a, it's a really big, really complex system. It changes day to day, year to year, interseasonally, 
And, you know, as especially we start to see the implications of climate and precipitation changes, the river as itself is sort of lurching to a new normal that is important for us to understand specifically so that we can take steps to reduce that larger, you know, hydrologic shift over time, but also protect our communities and our natural resources from a, a, a changing function and expression of this river over time. Um, the river in 2100 is going to look quite different from the river today. And so getting out ahead of some of those changes is, is really important. Yeah. And I, I want to talk about one of the specific efforts that you all have been really leading and, and working on, which is the Mississippi River Restoration and Resilience Initiative Act. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about this uh, initiative, this piece of legislation and why it is so critical to some of the, the challenges and opportunities that you were highlighting earlier in the show? Yeah, so the backstory here is that, um, you know, our one of our local congresswomen, um, Congresswoman Betty McCullum from Minnesota's fourth congressional district, that's the sort of St. Paul and eastern suburbs area, uh, came to us a few years ago and said, you know, I work closely on interior appropriations and we see these EPA geographic programs like the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative come before our committee and they receive broad, really enthusiastic bipartisan support. And these programs are successful. Uh, they bring partners together from, from you know, all across the, the spectrum of work on the Great Lakes, provide targeted funding in a planful, you know, thoughtful, prioritized manner, and are successful in addressing key issues that are affecting the health of these really big and dynamic lake systems. Why don't we have something like that for the Mississippi River? And so, um, we said, you know, good point. Why don't we start exploring that? And so we, we, we began to work with partners from across the nation to develop this Mississippi River Restoration and Resilience Initiative Act uh, that Congresswoman McCullum has since introduced, and we expect a Senate introduction relatively soon. Um, this isn't a regulatory program. This follows the contours of the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative in that it is a voluntary, non-regulatory funding program that would provide between 300 and $350 million a year to the 10 main stem Mississippi River states, as well as local governments, tribal nations, organizations, research institutions, nonprofits, and others, um, really with a goal of addressing four key focus areas on the Mississippi River, uh, where federal funding and dedicated you know, federal, state, and local coordination can be most effective. And that is restoring clean water, protecting and restoring habitat in and along the river itself, rebuilding natural infrastructure and improving river delta health, and then reducing the impacts of aquatic invasive species. So we feel like that package of four priority areas built in along the same contours as a proven model of the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative could be really effective in addressing many of the issues that face the river today. Absolutely. And also, it seems like, uh, you know, the legislation in, in terms of a, a convening mechanism, like you said, for the, the 10 states or so that are um, kind of part of the Mississippi River watershed, um, that being another key aspect, that's that's important. Where can folks learn more about the Mississippi River Restoration and Resilience Initiative Act um, and, and kind of get involved? Uh, well, if you're up here in the Twin Cities, feel free to just hop on uh, fmr.org. That, that's F as in friends, M as in Mississippi, and R as in river. Uh, we've got plenty of information about uh, the 
the MIRI Act and, and the MIRI Initiative um, here. At the national level, um, our partners, uh, the Mississippi River Network, are, are key members of this broader MIRI collaborative. And, and if you go to one Mississippi, the number one, mississippi.org, and search for MIRI, M-R-R-R-I, uh, all of the information and more that you would ever want to know about the initiative is available there. And that includes um, opportunities for individuals to reach out to your uh, lawmakers at the federal level and ask them to support uh, the MIRI Act in both chambers of the Congress. That's great. Um, and we'll definitely include the links in our show um, so the folks can access it in that way as well. Um, so Trevor, you know, we have just a few more questions left. And, and before I let you go, I mean, one of the things that definitely comes up in our work on coastal Louisiana, when we think about, you know, restoring Louisiana's coast and addressing challenges from, you know, more intense hurricanes, sea level rise, land loss, flooding, um, is, you know, these are big challenges. We mentioned Louisiana's coast is dynamic and ever changing. Um, and, and thinking about solutions, thinking about, you know, moving the ball forward can often be daunting. Um, I imagine similarly on the Mississippi River, you know, it's a, it's a big system. It's constantly changing. There are significant challenges ahead presented by climate change, increased precipitation, et cetera. Um, so how, you know, do you remain hopeful and how do you, in the face of these challenges, stay focused on the important work day to day that um, is involved in, in helping, you know, restore the health of the Mississippi River? That, that's a great question. It's it's easy to get down. And so I try to remember our success stories. And, and I'll tell you one. Um, and this, this dates back to 1963, Jacques. So before before you and I were, were even around doing this work. Um, in 1963, there were a grand total of 417 bald eagle nesting pairs in the lower 48 states. Uh, and today we have more than 10,000, including 1,300 just in Minnesota. Um, and this is the product directly of public intervention, recognizing a problem, recognizing a shared value in you know, protecting and restoring our natural resources and our wildlife, and people coming together to address you know, contaminants in our environment that were having a toxic effect on our natural resources. Similarly, the Mississippi River is uh, the lifeblood of our nation, and I believe it is the sort of resource that Americans will come together to protect. Uh, it's easy to say water is life in sort of a, an abstract sense, but I like to, to remind myself uh, every day that the, the drinking water source for, for me and for you, Jacques, is the Mississippi River, along with 1.1 million Minnesotans and about 20 million Americans in 50 U.S. cities downstream. Uh, Jacques, you and I are mostly water, depending on our age and body composition, anywhere from you know 55 to 75 percent water. Um, most of who you and I are is the Mississippi River. And that holds true for millions of Americans. And I believe that over time, we will come to recognize that that the Earth is a special place. Uh, it is a somewhat lonely planet in a potentially uh, infinite, lifeless universe. And it is important for us to protect and restore our home. And you know, the Mississippi River is such a special resource. It connects so many people in so many different ways as, a, as an economic engine, uh, as a natural resource, as a drinking water source, as a migratory waterway. Uh, I believe that it is uh, in our best interest and will over time become part of our shared ethic that we must protect and restore this river. The solutions are daunting, 
but they are not the sort of solutions that we've been unable to overcome in other areas of, of life. We've made significant improvements in renewable energy and transit and transportation um, and point source pollutants like the DDT that was poisoning our, uh, our bald eagle population through, you know, prior to the Bald Eagle Protection Act, the National Ban on DDT and the Endangered Species Act. So we have a track record of success when we pull together and, and work collaboratively to solve major problems. And I believe that we will do the same for the Mississippi River. Wow. Well, Trevor, that is certainly a very powerful and eloquent answer to that very challenging question. So thank you for answering it. And, and hopefully other folks will feel inspired by your answer, You know, whether they're listening from Minnesota or, or down in Louisiana. I will point out that the Mississippi River also provides drinking water to the city of New Orleans. And your example of the bald eagle is one that can resonate with our listeners as well. I mean, we've certainly seen bald eagles rebound in Louisiana, but also the brown pelican, the roseate spoonbill, um, so many of these other birds that were threatened and endangered. And then as a result of you know thoughtful um, you know, legislation and other solutions, um, we're seeing the birds return in, in record numbers. And, and a few years ago, there was a restoration project completed, um, Queen Bess Island. That's one of the main critical bird rookeries um, for brown pelicans and, and other birds in, in coastal Louisiana. And, and kind of seeing that project completed and then, you know, several months later, seeing, you know, the, the brown pelicans nest in, in thousands, uh, it was really an incredible reminder of the impact we can have in our lives. So thank you so much for that. Um, well, you are certainly have a lot going on, and the Friends of the Mississippi River um, does as well. You mentioned, you know, you were just part of one of the programs that that the FMR um, oversees. So, are there any other upcoming uh, uh, events or projects you want to highlight, or other parts of your work? I know there's the the River Dreams of event that's coming up, but if there's anything else that I didn't ask that you want to highlight about FMR or your work on the water program, uh, please feel free to share it with our listeners. Well, there's a there is a whole lot going on. Um, I would say that you know the we hope the Mississippi River Restoration and Resilience Initiative Act will move forward uh, this fall. We are working on a host of um, innovative programming um, related to agriculture here in Minnesota, uh, specifically sort of new cropping systems like Kernza, which is a, a perennial wheat. So from the roots down, it acts like a perennial prairie. And from the ground up, it acts like a, a traditional wheat crop that has remarkable uh, benefits for soil and water quality and habitat. Um, and farmers can harvest it and sell it and, and make more money than they would on regular wheat. So from the policy arena to the landscape arena, there is just so much going on in the river. Um, I would, well, would simply invite folks to check out fmr.org learn a little bit more about the huge diversity of, of uh, work we're doing. We've got events um, pretty much every single day of the week. Uh, if you want to um, clean up trash, plant, uh, plant you know, rain gardens and, and, and prairies, get rid of uh, invasive species, learn more about the Bruce Vento Nature Sanctuary and Wakan Tipi, um, or help us uh, in any of our advocacy or education or outreach efforts, please visit us online and, and get involved with FMR. And that is fmr.org. Is that correct? It, that is correct. Okay. Well, well, Trevor, thank you so much again for being on and sharing your perspective and in, insights um, with our listeners. I certainly hope you know folks learned more about the Upper River and about what we experience here in Minnesota and kind of were able to connect it to 
um, you know, the work that's happening in Louisiana and along the Mississippi River. Um, we do have to ask, you know, Simone and I always ask a fun question um, to our uh, guests before we let them go. So I have a fun question for you. I hope it won't get you into trouble with any partners or colleagues. Um, but I guess if my question is, if you had to spend a weekend in any part of the Mississippi River that was not in Minnesota, where would it be and why? Again, really hope I'm not going to cause any problems with some of your neighbors and, and folks so, along the river. Yeah, I mean, Jack, the, the cheap answer here is New Orleans because <laughs> I think the French Quarter is the most fun place in the world. Um, I can spend a weekend in the French Quarter. I have learned uh, the hard way that I cannot spend three days in the French Quarter. Uh, that's the maximum is, is two days for me because that's just the amount of fun that, that my body can handle. Uh, in that period of time. One area that I have not been to that I would really like to spend some time in, ironically, is the Quad Cities in Iowa. Um, I've never been. I've heard wonderful things about um, about the area and their, you know, transition from sort of having turned their backs to the river from a development perspective to really flipping their communities around and re-engaging the river. And I know a, a lot of partners in that area um, do a lot of wonderful work. And so I won't go with New Orleans. I'm going to go with the Quad Cities in Iowa. That That is totally fair. It sounds like you've spent your fair share of time in, in New Orleans and in the French mm -hmm. Quarter. And certainly anytime you're, you're down there, I know our partners would be eager to host you and get you out of the French Quarter and maybe see some areas along the coast and some of the work that's happening. But also good answer on Quad Cities. You know, I, I'd like to check that out. I've heard they've done some great things in terms of, um, you know, allowing room for the river and that sort of thing. So a very, very good answer. Um, well, Trevor, again, thank you so much for being on Delta Dispatches. Um, you know, FMR and yourself always have an open mic if you'd like to come back and share any updates with us. Um, and for folks that want to learn more about the important work you're doing, they can always go to fmr.org. And Jacques, thank you for having me. And thank you for the important work that Delta Dispatches is doing, casting a, a spotlight on, on a lot of the great work that is going on upstream in the Mississippi River. Well, I certainly appreciate it. So um, with that, I will now give our Coastal Stat of the Week, which is very relevant. Um, it's from the National Park Service. The Mississippi River is one of the world's major river systems in size and is the fourth largest watershed in the world. Extended from the Allegheny Mountains in the east to the Rocky Mountains in the west, the Mississippi River drains an area of about 3.2 million square kilometers, including all or parts of 32 states and two Canadian provinces, about 40% of the continental United States. Um, and you certainly see that when you see a map of the entire Mississippi River uh, Basin. And, and our coastal voice of the week this week is from Matthew in Lafayette. And he says, I support the coast because that is exactly what the coast has done for humans for thousands of years. As a hurricane barrier, it added the extra layer of protection for the inlands. It has been with human interference that the coast has begun to erode with rapidity never before seen in history. It's our responsibility to restore what we have destroyed from our coast to not only help protect ourselves, but also help protect the marine wildlife we hold so dear to our hearts. Um, so thank you, Matthew and Lafayette. And just a reminder, you can always go to mississippiriverdelta.org slash restore dash the dash coast. Share your perspective on why Louisiana's coast is so vital to you. Um, another great episode. Really excited to continue the conversations on Delta Dispatches with future guests in the upcoming weeks. But until then, thank you for listening and we will see y'all later, alligators. Bye.